good. That's good. All right. Well, I am delighted to be uh, with you this morning. And um, it's been really fun having some of our guest speakers and having Dave Johnson here this past month. And they went back to Minnesota, and they're going to get snowed on <laughs> in a few days. So they'll be begging to come back. But you're stuck with me now for a few months, um, aside from tag-teaming with Jim next year, so uh, next week. So uh, thank you. I'll give you that 20 bucks later for starting the claps. Thank you for that. All right, let's pray this morning as we begin. Father, you are good. Thank you that you deeply love us, and now I pray that the words that I share, that I speak, um, pray for open hearts, and that it would land where you want it to land. Uh, Holy Spirit, if you don't show up, then all this is just um, a waste of time, so Holy Spirit, come and have your way with us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a little bit ago, uh, Easter is coming up in just two weeks, which I can't even believe it. And if you have been with us these last number of weeks on this journey of Lent, um, it's been really an incredible time for us. Now, if you're new with us or you don't come from a background where Lent was observed, just a quick explanation. Uh, Lent is a period of time where we prepare our hearts for Easter. And we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and if you back that out, 40 days uh, before Easter, Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter, which oftentimes we take a journey that reflects on the cross and on Jesus' uh, journey to the cross. Um, but there is uh, no resurrection at Easter if not for the cross, and the Friday prior to Easter, we're going to gather here for a Good Friday service at 6.30. And Good Friday is where we will pause and reflect on the crucifixion and death of Jesus. But Lent and Good Friday and Easter, all of this stuff um, that happens every year is such a wonderful way for us to return year after year and remember what Jesus has done. And so I'm really grateful for, for these seasons of, of Lent because I'm really forgetful. I mean, I get cruising through my own life, and I lose track so quickly of the larger story of what God is doing around me and what he has done from eternity past, and, and I get caught up in the crazy pace of my own life, and, and I can lose sight of the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. I can, I can forget about the power of his resurrection and what that means for my life today, that he won that victory and maybe the biggest danger in all of that is that even with the seasons of Lent and the spiritual practices that help you know, connect us to the heart of God, we can so easily, just in life, forget the point of the story of God, the, the point of, of, of the kingdom of God. And like one thing, and this is the thing that really struck me this week, is that we can so easily forget that God wants to be in a relationship with us. Instead, oftentimes, we exchange having this relationship that he desires with us, and we settle for, for just learning more information about God. But God doesn't want us to approach him like he's some formula to be mastered and understood. And if we figure out how to tweak the mixture just right, but then our lives will go well. No, that's not what he's after. The heart of God longs to be in an intimate relationship with you. And so this Lenten season really has been an invitation for us to remember the true things of God and to return to his heart. 
And this week I was reading, and I would actually had a bunch of verses, and I'm looking at the time, so I'm going to encourage you to read through. Um, I've been reading in the book of Matthew, and just back it out a few chapters from where Jesus goes to the cross in, in Matthew 23, 24, and 25. It's amazing. Just Jesus goes on this run of different um, things that he is teaching and saying on the days leading up to his betrayal and crucifixion. In fact, when you read him in light of, hey, he's about, the things he's saying are upsetting the religious people so much that they're about to scheme to have him plot, they're plotting to have him killed. And, and, and so you read it with that context in mind. And Jesus had been very confrontative with the religious leaders of the day. So much so, again, that his final rant that he um, went on in some ways, the, the, the powerful leaders then schemed to take his life. And so read that this week, these chapters um, that lead up to what we call Holy Week. It's amazing the things that Jesus says. Here's one of them that I'll just read um, that he's saying to the religious elite of his day. He says, woe to you. This is Matthew 23, verse 27. He says to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people to be righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And I see that and go, wait a minute, Jesus isn't being a very nice Christian here, is he, right? No. Um, but Jesus is speaking the truth to these religious leaders. And as I read that, what caught me through that and some of the other parts of the passage, what really caught me this week was the thought that they looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were dead. I mean, the people that Jesus went after here, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, these were the religious elite folks who knew more about scriptures than anyone. And the assumption that people had was that because they knew more, that they were more pleasing to God. But his confrontation to them, it wasn't about so much of their theology and doctrine, although it was some of that. He was going after them about their hearts. See, their head knowledge was not enough. Their, their religious fervor and devotion was obvious, but Jesus looked past that and saw that they were dead inside. See, they had forgotten the point of being the people of God. See, it wasn't supposed to be about their perfect performance, their superior knowledge, or their excellent doctrine. It wasn't even about their good works. God wanted their hearts. And as I looked at that, I thought, wow, you know, I know that I can easily do that same thing. In fact, I think if we get really honest, friends, we have to admit that it's easy for us to forget about our relationship with God. We can miss the point of our faith, and, and we can get stuck trying to just know more about God instead of actually engaging in an intimate relationship with God. I mean, it, it doesn't happen on purpose, right? You do your best to follow Jesus, to, to, to serve him, to study the word, but let's be honest, sometimes like something seems to be missing. And when we stop long enough, when we reflect, when we remember what we've forgotten about this relationship that he offers us, and we compare that to the actual Christian life that some of us are honest enough to look at, we go, wow, something has gotten lost in the translation. Because despite our best efforts, so much of Christianity gets reduced to problems to be solved and doctrine to be mastered. What we have now, really, in the modern era is a Christianity in so many places that's been reduced to a gospel of tips and techniques. Um, 
Three steps to a better quiet time. Five ways to share your faith. Seven habits of a highly successful marriage. It's just, but it's just tips and tricks. And it doesn't exactly take your breath away. And let me tell you something. That is not an option because the, if the gospel doesn't take your breath away, something else will. See, John Eldridge says your heart is made to have your breath taken away. And that's why this season of Lent is so important to be in because we can remember what we've forgotten. We can return. And this is common. This has happened all through history, right? We forget. The people of God, they forgot. And we forget. And over and over, God always invites and woos them and us to remember and return. I mean, just think back to the situation here where Jesus is confronting these religious leaders before they plot to have him crucified. Um, the Christianity, or I'm sorry, the faith, the faith that was on display there, um, the connection with God that their forefathers had had, that, that Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets, that connection with God, that vibrant faith, their beautiful relationship with God, all of that stuff that we read about in the Old Testament, that had just gotten lost. And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the Pharisees had reduced the religion um, to a religion of rule-keeping, a religion of tips and techniques, of duty and information. And in that passage that we just read a moment ago, uh, Jesus said to them essentially here, he's saying, you know what, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. In fact, you're just plain dead. You're, you're like whitewashed sepulchers, your tombs. And what God had called his people to, invited them to in relationship, they had just gotten way off track. And all through history, uh, our focus on having a relationship with God easily gets lost. And again, today with us, we too can miss the point. We can start to think that what God really wants is for us to fill our head full of knowledge so that we can just know the right answers and check off the right boxes. And sadly, in many circles, the person who gets looked up to and admired is the one with the most answers and with the airtight doctrine, while the person who simply loves to be with Jesus is kind of seen as a novelty, maybe even shallow or naive, Friends, in those circles, um, I think like the Pharisees, it's easy to get caught up in knowing about God and forget that what God is after, first and foremost, is our hearts. And again, this happens all the time, and I want to go to a movie clip that vividly depicts uh, what has gone wrong and how Christianity, in some ways, often gets taught in our modern, rationalistic, intellect-only approach to theology. There's a scene from a movie that's... Uh, 30 years old this year, which makes me feel really old. Uh, Dead Poet Society, anybody ever seen Dead Poet Society? Yeah, so there's a story of this movie, if you haven't seen it. Uh, the story takes place in a privileged private college prep school. It's the school for young men who are the cream of the crop. They're on their way to becoming the elite leaders, movers, and shakers of society. The school is excellent. Uh, it's also rigorous, efficient, demanding, and soul-killing. Now, Robin Williams plays Professor Keating, and he comes in as their literature professor, and he is there to ransom their hearts. Now, this here is the first day of class that we're about to see, and as you watch this clip, just substitute um, religious Christianity for what he's calling poetry. Just make that little switch in your mind as he's talking, and tell me if this isn't true. Gentlemen, open your text, page 21 of the introduction. Mr. Perry... Will you read the opening paragraph of the preface entitled Understanding Poetry? 
Understanding Poetry by Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. To fully understand poetry, we must first be fluent with its meter, rhyme, and figures of speech, then ask two questions. One, how artfully has the objective of the poem been rendered? And two, how important is that objective? Question one rates the poem's perfection. Question two rates its importance. And once these questions have been answered, determining the poem's greatness becomes a relatively simple matter. If the poem's score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph, and its importance is plotted on the vertical, then calculating the total area of the poem yields the measure of its greatness. A sonnet by Byron might score high on the vertical, but only average on the horizontal. A Shakespearean sonnet, on the other hand, would score high both horizontally and vertically, yielding a massive total area thereby revealing the poem to be truly great. As you proceed through the poetry in this book, practice this rating method. As your ability to evaluate poems in this manner grows, so will, so will your enjoyment and understanding of poetry. Excrement. That's what I think of Mr. J. Evans Pritchard. We're not laying pipe talking about poetry. I mean, how can you describe poetry like American bandstand? Well, I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't <laughs> dance to him. Now, I want you to rip out that page. Go on. Rip out the entire page. You heard me. Rip it out. Rip it out! Go on. Rip it out! Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Gentlemen, tell you what, not just tear out that page, tear out the entire introduction. I want it gone. History, leave nothing of it. Rip it out. Rip. Be gone, J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. Rip, shred, tear, rip it out. I want to hear nothing but ripping of Mr. Pritchard. We'll perforate it, put it on a roll. Is that the Bible? You're not going to go to hell for this. Make a clean tear. I want nothing left of it. Rip it out, rip! What the hell is going on here? I don't hear enough rip. Mr. Keating. Mr. McAllister. I'm sorry, I, I didn't know you were here. I am. Ah, so you are. Excuse me. Keep ripping, gentlemen. This is a battle, a war, and the casualties could be your hearts and souls. Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Uh, uh, if it wasn't so funny, I think I would cry. Because the truth is, I think this is awfully close to what many in the modern world have done to the Bible. And, and maybe what some of us sometimes might have to stop and wonder if we haven't done to our faith. Like out of good intentions, right, we turn it into tips and techniques, to duty and information, right? Know the right things, do the right things. And know the right things, yes, do that. And do the right things, yes. 
But the problem is that there are religious people everywhere that try to do life this way. In fact, I, I know of some, some preachers, what they were taught was that the purpose of a sermon on Sunday morning is to give people a religious lecture to impress others with their knowledge of doctrine and, and then to convince the congregation that we need to pick up the religious lingo so that we all nod and talk about theological concepts that never actually touch our hearts or connect us to the heart of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong here, right? Knowledge, education, theology, doctrine, they are all very important. So don't misunderstand me. They're very important. But they can't become the point. Because getting more tips and tricks or advice in a motivational talk disguised as a sermon, that's not what we need. That will not satisfy the deep hunger in our hearts for a relationship with God that was placed in us by God. Years ago, a friend of mine described what happens when we turn Sunday morning preaching into motivational talks or to religious lectures. She said, it's bird seed for the mind, but it does nothing to awaken our hearts. She said, formula-based teaching is incongruent with the way that God has wired us. And formula-based teaching would be the thing that follows this pattern of, okay, so if I just do A, then God will have to give me what I want, B, right? Uh, or, or the formula could be, okay, if I just obey and give, then God owes me riches and prosperity, right? Um, or, this is a common one that maybe is unspoken that many of us believe and find out that we believe when things don't go the way we want them to believe. We believe the formula, if I just do the right thing, if I behave the right way, then God owes me a happy little life, right? To quote the professor in Dead Poets, excrement, right? He's... <laughs> This isn't laying pipe. This is a living, vibrant relationship with a person, with, with God. It's a romance, really. It's a relationship. See, God is in pursuit of you, and he wants to transform your heart. See, see what God is after is you. Not, not just that you would have all the right knowledge and theology and doctrine, as important as those things are and can be. They substitute a relationship for God, and I think he would look at us and that and go, that's no better than the whitewashed tomb Pharisee that he was calling out. See, God is a personal God, and he created you, and he created you not just kind of sit back and entertain himself, like, oh, let's see what he does today, right? He didn't just make you like a character on his own personal reality show and sit back to watch you like a, you know, a character in the latest sitcom. It's, it's, it's not a one-way relationship where God knows us, but we can never really know him. And I think we think of it that way too often. And I think it was, I couldn't find the quote exactly, but I think it was Donald Miller who explained it something like this. He said, William Shakespeare and his creations... Romeo and Juliet, they live in entirely different worlds. Now, as the author, uh, Shakespeare can know Romeo and Juliet, right? He knows them because he created them. But is it possible for Romeo and Juliet to know Shakespeare? No. See, they're limited by the nature of their existence because they are just creations. But what if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play? What if Shakespeare made himself a central figure in the story? Well, then they could get to know him. Then they could interact with him. Then they could be in relationship with him. See, and that is what God has done. Jesus came in the flesh and lived among people. God wrote himself into the story. 
And he didn't just reel off a bunch of doctrine or to-do lists that every Christian must now follow to show they're really serious about a relationship with God. Um, No, no, he offered us himself, a relationship with him. Friends, I have really good news for us. Like The gospel is not an invitation to tips and techniques. It's not even just an invitation for us to behave well. It's not even just an invitation for us to reform society. See, the heart of God longs to be in an intimate relationship with you. Not one where you just read about him, but where you actually interact with him. And so the Bible is crucial because he wrote the Bible as a living love letter to you. Like, this is not just an instruction manual, okay? Great instructions in the Bible, yes and amen, right? But it's not just that. This is a part of an active relationship that God wants to be in with each one of us. And when I say something like that, I know for some of us that might even be a new thought. Like to remember, though, even for those of you that have forgotten, to remember God's desire to be in close relationship with you, your heart rises up and says, I really hope that's true. It's almost like when you first came to Christ, for many of you, think back to the time where you said yes to Jesus and what you expected from the Christian life. It was so exciting and God seemed so close, but somewhere along the line there's usually some sort of disconnect and what started as the greatest story ever heard somehow got translated into a long checklist, a long checklist of things to do. And maybe for you, over time, the Bible and teaching about the Bible just became an instruction manual. Just know more and do more. But friends, I got to tell you from experience, that way of living will suffocate your heart. Your heart was made to know God and to love God, to be in a connected, intimate relationship with God. See, your heart speaks a language. And what moves our heart is not the same thing that moves our mind. See, our heart doesn't just speak the language of barren facts uh, of mathematics. Um, the language our heart speak is not, it speaks is not merely propositional. Um, allow me to illustrate. I'm going to speak some facts here, okay? Ready? <clears throat> God is omniscient. God is immutable. And God is omnipresent. There, don't you feel closer to him right there? Doesn't that do it for you? Now, those things that I said, they are true, right? They are facts. They are accurate. God is all of those things. But friends, we need more than just mere facts. And it's not that those things aren't true. They are true. But but friends, proposition fails to communicate the deepest and truest thing. Like you can say, um, 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's true, right? You can say, God loves you. That's true as well. But not nearly, it's not nearly as powerful as telling a story about Jesus of Nazareth and and who he is and why he came and what he did. And by the end of that story, we begin to understand something about his actual love. But the modern era that we live in, like something shifted and we began to believe, especially in academia, that, that, that the way to really communicate truth is through dry facts and airtight doctrine and say, well, that's what really matters. Okay, so for example, um, in modern terms, if airtight, you know, facts are what matter, um, what is the truth of a kiss? What's the truth 
of a kiss? Well, it's two sets of mandibles pressing together for a duration of time with the possible exchange of some digestive fluids, right? <laughs> now, yeah. Now, technically, that definition is true, but if you have ever had a real, a passionate kiss, like, what? Right now, that would be so untrue to define a kiss that way. It's, it's, it is not true. Now, listen carefully here. There are ways of talking about the truth that make it untrue. There are ways of talking about the truth that make it untrue. You can dissect it, you can take it apart, you can do the J. Evans Pritchard poetry graph thing, and you rob it of its meaning and purpose. And I fear that sometimes we do that to Christianity and that we do that to our view of God. We dissect the whole thing. And we have thousands of facts, right, doctrine. We have bits of information everywhere, but none of it actually speaks anymore. See, but Jesus speaks, and he speaks to the heart. And the central desire of any human heart is to come into union with God and to be known by him and know that he loves us as we are. I, I kind of feel like it's almost like this, this simple in some ways, that there's two choices before us in how we relate to God. Um, we can either, number one, live by formulas and checklists, or number two, we live by relationship with God, by the heart. And it seems like a no-brainer, right? It seems like, like of course we would choose the, the, the relationship. But sadly, I think sometimes we almost would rather have the formula. I wonder if most people wouldn't rather have a checklist. You know, okay, here's the three steps to the answer for my life, right? We want this formula because this, this Christianity of tips and techniques has overrun the Christian Western world. I mean, even think about your own life for a moment here. Let me meddle for just a moment. Uh, how much of your life operates by what you, you know, should do? How much of things do you do by duty or obligation or ought to? Uh, how much or what percentage of your life is from duty versus what flows from the wellspring of life within you that is filled through being connected with God? What's, what's the breakdown? I don't like being honest about that one either. So, um, See, because Christianity was supposed to be this story to give us back our hearts and tell us our true identity, give us the real plot, but much of it doesn't speak anymore because it's become that J. Evans Pritchard poetry graph. It's become tips and techniques or duties and principles and proposition. It's, it's two sets of mandibles pressing together for a duration of time, okay? Okay, it's true, but it doesn't take your breath away. And when our preaching or our so-called discipleship plans um, operate that way, they don't speak. When they become equations, they don't actually speak or work. And the reason for that is that God is a person, not an equation. And relationship is what you do with a person. So people that try to tell us that you can, well, you can get rid of all the mystery of God and just kind of solve and lay the whole thing out in correct doctrine alone, they're not telling you the truth. Because God will not remove all the mystery and just lay it out with a checklist for us. Do you want to know why? Because he wants to be engaged in relationship with you. He wants to have a conversational intimacy with you. I mean, think about... <laughs> the way that we have treated this, it, it, it would be, can you imagine how sad it would be at your birth if your father set before you, 
you know, an instruction manual at your birth. Here's your instruction manual with all the steps of your life laid out and said, well, I'll see you in 70, 80 years or so. Just follow the instructions and walked away. We would be heartbroken, right? That's not what we want. That's not what we need from our mothers and fathers. We don't want their resources nearly as much as we want relationship with them. We want them. It's, it's companionship and love and intimacy that we crave. Or, or, or think of it this way. Can you imagine you get married to someone, and, and it's time to leave for the honeymoon, but they actually just go drive off by themselves instead of taking you with, and they say, hey, okay, hey, tell me what you want to do, what you want me to do, send me a list of instructions, for the year, and I'll, I'll go do it, and we, we can meet next year. We'll go over our goals. I'll check back once in a while to talk about the progress and set some new instructions, so nice, nice to marry you. See you later, right? But we do that, don't we? Oftentimes in our relationship with, with God, I think that lots of Christians live our life that way. We just sort of check in once in a while, get the instructions, and then go off and do it or don't. But God wants a relationship with us. He leaves some of this to be a mystery because he wants to draw us back to himself. He wants to talk to you in a growing, intimate relationship. See, but too often we settle for formula, or we at least try to. But friends, we can't depend on a formula because there is no formula, people. Like, look at the scriptures. God almost never does things the same way twice. I mean, those of you that know some of the Old Testament stories, right? Think back to when the children of Israel were about to finally enter into the promised land, the whole story of the city of Jericho. They're freed from slavery. Now they're in the promised land, but there's this walled city of Jericho that's kind of the first thing to overcome before they can occupy. And so what's the battle plan? God says, <clears throat> all right, here's how you're going to take the city. You're going to blow trumpets for seven days, marching around the city, and on the seventh day, everybody's going to march around it, we're going to shout, the walls are going to come tumbling down, okay? You got that? They actually did it, because they trusted him, and by the way, it works marvelously, and he never does it again. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you think with a great result like that, you'd at least want to try it on the next city, right? <laughs> oh, let's give it a shot, right? I mean, we are so formulaic. I think I'd be like, hey, that worked. Let's do it again. Let's go to the next city. Get out the trumpets. We're out marching around, right? I mean, it's but... Or even better, I think we see a lot of this coming out of the church world. Um, wow, that worked great. Let's write a book about it so we can sell it to others, okay? And that's why it doesn't work when somebody else tries to import that whole deal because it's not about a formula. It's about walking with God. It's about relationship, intimacy. It's about hearing his voice. Another example, think about Gideon, right? This ridiculous story of Gideon and his army. He's got about 30,000 soldiers. They're already scared to death because they're still outnumbered at 30,000. They're getting ready to go to battle. They're finally ready to try to at least, okay, we're going to try this thing. And God comes in, whittles the army, long story short, down to 300. From 30,000 to 300, now the army's 300. And then when they go to attack, they're going to attack with... <clears throat> Water pots and torches? What? What? And if you know the story, right, it actually works marvelously, and God never does it that way again. Are you following me here? 
We want a formula to do our Christian life, and there is none. And for much of my life, I've been steeped in that way of thinking, you know, just figure out the steps, master the formula so we can get on with it, right? But it's another example of why we need to be in relationship with God and hear his voice. Let's say we took seriously Jesus' um, uh, invitation for us to heal the sick, um, heal the deaf, that the blind would see, right? We go, okay, Jesus said that, I want to go do it, right? Okay, what I'm going to probably need to do is just follow Jesus around and see how Jesus healed the blind. Now, if you did that looking for the formula, you'd be super frustrated because he never does it the same way twice, right? There's one blind guy, he just talks to him, and boom, the guy is healed. Another guy, Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, and then puts the mud in the guy's eyes and healed. Another guy, he spits on the guy, healed. Another guy, he kicks out a demon, boom, healed. Like, it's just never the same way twice. So we need to be in relationship with God, hearing from him, because he's a relational being. He's not a formula for us to dissect and control. So if we want to see people heal, we have to listen for his voice. We have to be in that relationship. He wants us to ask, to learn to listen for his voice, and to follow him. Okay, there's one more I got to do. I know I'm, I'm running late, but I got to do this one anyway. So there's this, we did the David series uh, all, all summer long, but, but there's this great story, right? There's King David. He's always warring with some tribe or another, um, and he has this relationship with God that helps him know what to do. There's one occasion. He's about to go up against their arch enemy, the Philistines, and the Bible uses this phrase. It says, and David inquired of the Lord, which was a frequent phrase used in regards to, to David. Um, David says, Lord, are we to go up against them in battle? And the Lord says, yes. And they go fight the Philistines, and they win. Now, just a few months later, the Philistines return to the same place again. So David should just know, right? Hey, just go do it, Dave, right? Does he just go do it? No. He has a relationship with God, and he knows how to walk with God. It says there, once again, David inquired of the Lord. This time God said, nah, I want you to go behind them. Wait till you hear the sound of the marching in the balsam trees behind above you, then you will know the army of the Lord has gone out before you, and then you go fight him. David listens. God was his ally. He was in an active relationship with God. He listened to the voice of God. And friends, if we're going to follow the example of David, I think what God is showing us in these stories is that if we want life, we're going to have to learn to listen to the voice of God, to inquire of the Lord, to walk with God, to follow his leading, to have a relationship. See, that's how he wants us to live with him, to walk with him in a relationship. And aren't you glad that it's about a relationship? Really, it's sometimes a little scary. But aren't you glad that God wants to connect and make it a matter of our hearts? See, because in our hearts is this deep place that longs for a connection with God. And again, friends, that place was put in you. That longing was put in you by God. It was intended to be filled with relationship by him and a life with God. He wants relationship, my friends. Troy, will you come? In our Lenten journey here of remembering and returning, I want to remind us this Sunday that, that life is not a problem to be solved. And, and Christianity is not just a list of chores to get done before Dad returns. That's not what's going on here. There is a story going on 
And the God of the universe invites you into a relationship with him in this story. And he wants to know you. And he wants you to get to know him. Not just know about him, even though that's important, but past that. He wants you to know him, to walk with him, to talk with him, to listen for his voice. And it's not just for you alone. See, you have a purpose. You are a vital character in the story that God is writing. And so when you step into this world, you are hurled into something far more beautiful and far more dangerous than most of us have been told or really live like. But friends, don't forget. Don't forget this. You are living in the midst of a great story. You were created in God's image to bring about great and wonderful things that reflect the kingdom of God in places that have grown dark with the power of the enemy. And you cannot do that. You cannot do what God has intended for you to do apart from an intimate relationship with him. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just have instrumental music behind us, and we're going to give you a couple minutes to reflect. We're in a busy, crazy world. And we're going to put some questions up on the screen that I want you just to take two minutes in this moment to do what sometimes we don't even have two minutes to get started during our week. But since we're here, let's take this time and let God speak. Let's honestly wrestle with some of these questions. Maybe write them down and use them for your journey this week. Um, but before we move into that time, um, into that quiet for reflection for a couple minutes, let me just pray. Father, looking at the state of our lives, many of us would need to confess that we have forgotten, that we miss it. So I pray you would save us from the loss of hope in our hearts, that you would restore us to our hearts, that you would set us free to pursue again the life and the relationship that we were made for. Come, God, open our hearts to authentic worship, to authentic relationship to authentic connection with you. Father, I pray in this moment as we just take a couple minutes to reflect on these questions that you would cause us to be very honest with you and ourselves about where we're at and what our hearts want.